We're going to transition now into uh, our teaching. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of Galatians, uh, you know that we started several weeks ago, months ago almost now, uh, a little series through the book of Galatians. And what I want to do real quick by way of preface um, to basically just jump into this little passage of Scripture, I'll read it in a second and we'll pray, um, to basically say that this the things that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks have been pretty intense. Like last week was really intense. We looked at this whole subject matter of idolatry and idols and what it means to worship false gods as Paul talks about um, because before this group of Galatians had come to Christ, they were enslaved. And he talks about how the Jews were also enslaved under the elementary principles of the law and things of that nature. And and how there was this former bit of enslavement that God actually rescued people from, and in particular rescued these Galatians from. And uh, so we dealt with a lot of pretty heavy stuff, intense stuff. Uh, several weeks before that, we looked at really just an amazing passage that had to do with uh, adoption of sons and daughters, being brought into God's kingdom, brought into God's family, that God doesn't relate with us just merely on the level within the courtroom. And we looked at that big theme of, uh, theological concept called justification by faith or by grace, but that God actually moves us from the zone of being in the courtroom to actually being in the living room where he adopts us as sons and daughters. It's a really amazing reality that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Uh, the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today, uh, quite frankly, is not as intense in terms of theological content. In fact, I would almost even say in a lot of ways, it's, it's sort of devoid of theological content. It's got it in there, but really it's sort of a snapshot into the heart of the Apostle Paul. It's, uh, to give you kind of a little bit of a perspective, up until this point in the entire book, <clears throat> Paul's been making an argument, strong theological arguments, and Paul's tone has been pretty intense. I mean, if, you know, we've been reading through this, and Paul basically starts the letter out completely sparing all the you know, just the normal flattery of, hey, how you guys doing? Love y'all. It's great to see ya. And uh, let's get to Jesus. Paul basically completely sidesteps all of the simple pleasantries. And he's like, look, you guys frustrate me. Here's why. And then he just builds the rest of his argument on that. All right. And so that's kind of the whole of the letter of the book of Galatians. But then Paul now changes really his entire tone in these few verses that we're going to read. And he changes it because I think he recognizes that as a good pastor, as a good leader, which Paul was, Paul wanted to make sure that these, guy, that, these, that these guys that he was writing to actually understood that they got the content, that they got the subject matter which he was trying to address them on. Because at the end of the day, Paul realized it's not about him trying to just simply convince this group of people about a new theological understanding. Paul was not just simply trying to just simply uh, make theologians out of these people. He wasn't trying to just simply develop their understanding and leave them at that. Paul wanted them to have affection for God. He wanted them to love God. He wanted them to know that they were actually loved by God. Paul was really a good pastor. He's a good leader. And he knew how to be able to change his tone when he needed to change the tone in order to refocus really the main point. Again, it's something that a lot of us can learn from. Because at the end of the day, sometimes we get this idea in our minds that people can be argued into subjection. When you argue somebody into subjection, you're really not bringing them to freedom. You're bringing them to slavery. Paul wasn't trying to bring them into slavery. In fact, Paul was trying to free them from slavery. 
It's one of the reasons why Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, uh, Christ has set us free. And it's for freedom's sake that Christ did this. His main goal is to try to bring about freedom elsewhere. And I think around 2 Corinthians chapter 1, somewhere around there, Paul says this. He says, I'm working for your joy. That's absolutely an amazing statement. That Paul's saying, look, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, the reason why I'm saying the things that I'm saying, the reason why I'm in ministry to bring about the things that I'm trying to bring about in your life is at the end of the day, I'm not trying to bring about your submission to me. I'm not trying to build my kingdom. I'm not trying to leverage tithes and offerings so I can get that big house I've always wanted. I'm not trying to somehow coerce you, to force you, to manipulate you, to get you into doing something that now I can look at and sort of feel proud of myself. Paul's saying at the end of the day, my number one driving passion for you is your joy. I want you to have joy in God. It's huge. That's what Paul's trying to say. So the point that I want to jump into, sort of by way of preface, to say this little section of Scripture from about verse 12 to verse 20 is very pastoral. But what I want to make certain is that even though this section of Scripture is excellent, for anybody that is considering going into the ministry, anybody that is maybe leading a Bible study, anybody that is any, in any form of church leadership or you've been in church leadership, it's one of those great passages by which I think you can look at and be very encouraged by. I don't think it has to exclusively, exclusively be uh, surrendered to just simply that. I think anybody that is in any form of leadership, whether it be your dad, or you're a mom, and you've got somebody looking up to you, looking for input, looking for guidance, looking for leadership, that these are, this is your little congregation. This is, these are little people that you can guide, you can lead. They're looking for direction. That you need to understand some of the ways in which way Paul had sort of handled himself with this group of people in Galatia. I think there's elements that can be transferred over to that as well. But the final thing I would just say and try to make this as broad as I can and as wide open as I can so that I can try to help encourage anybody who's in here, anybody at the end of the day that wants to be an agent of change in anybody's life, if you desire to be an agent of change, if you desire to help somebody who's maybe going through a difficult time, somebody who's trapped, somebody who's going through tough seasons in life, Somebody who's bound by either sin or somebody who's bound even by religious moralism or legalistic type stuff or any type of religion, period. If you want to be an agent of change, there's certain elements that you need to be able to understand that will help you to be more effective in bringing about change in that person's life. Change that truly lasts. Change that's just not simply uh, temporary, but change that's eternal. And these are some of the elements I think that we can take a look at in this passage here. Even though it might not be very strong in theological content like we've been looking at up until this point, I think hopefully at the end of the day it might be helpful for some of you. For the rest of you, I think it will ultimately point to Jesus and hopefully you'll be encouraged by that. So with that being said, I want to read this passage and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to get to work. So beginning about verse 12 says this, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not seem, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? 
For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your very eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy because I told you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you, that they, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not, not only when I am present with you. My little children, for I am, in, for I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. God, we ask you right now that you just help to open our eyes to this passage. God, I pray even bigger than this, that we would not just simply understand a passage, but God, that we would understand your heart, that we would understand really your heart behind this passage. And the very fact that Paul can say things like, become as me as I became, because I want you to become like me, because, God, that's exactly what you did. You became like us, ultimately so that we can one day become like you, free. So, God, I pray right now that you just help us to understand your heart, help us to understand how you desire for us to live, help us to understand, God, how to be agents of change. So we pray, Lord, just open our eyes to see Jesus. We ask all these things in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to jump in basically by giving you guys a very, very brief background of the Apostle Paul, because I think when you understand a little bit about who Paul was, uh, it almost makes the story kind of come out a little bit even further from the page. Paul was one of these guys that, even though he was born in sort of a Gentile region, born in an area called Tarsus, uh, he was a Jew. He was born in a Jewish family. Uh, he was told, uh, he told us later, and I think in Philippians, he said that he was born in the tribe of Benjamin, which is very significant. Benjamin was actually the tribe in which Saul... Uh, Saul, the, the great king Saul was born from, it was a kingly tribe. And so Paul's like, look, I was born from, from one of the best tribes. I mean, not only that, I was a Jew of Jews. Paul later on in his life basically started training in this very elite sect of Judaism. It's called Phariseeism. Uh, some of the main antagonists to Jesus' ministry uh, came out of basically this triad of three groups, uh, scribes, Pharisees, and um, Sadducees were sort of the main group of guys that kind of caused problems for Jesus, uh, but don't necessarily think that just because they caused all the problem that all of them were bad. I mean, there's some that were actually turning to Christ. Um, Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. Uh, he was the one that actually let Jesus borrow his grave. Uh, actually, Jesus gave him the grave back. Um, but also, we, we, we know that even like Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night. He was part of the, uh, part of the group of people called the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. He trained in this sort of very strict form of the sect of Judaism. And uh, it, was, it was not uncommon for Pharisees to actually have memorized very large portions of the Bible. I mean, some of you might be like, dude, I memorized like 12 verses. Like, that's sweet. That's good. You should memorize more. Uh, Paul the Apostle probably would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. I mean, that's, that's how significant and important these guys were first century. These were the scholars of the day. These were the guys that memorized scriptures of the day. Uh, these were the guys that were the teachers of the day, and people loved them. People loved them. People came to them, turned to them. Uh, they were the confidants of the people of the day. They were the religious leaders of the day. Uh, they were the ones that held to the sacredness of the, of the Bible of the day. Uh, the Sadducees, sometimes people think like the Sadducees and Pharisees were like buddy buddies. They hated each other. They were like cats and dogs. They absolutely, it was the equivalent to Democrats and Republicans. That's who the scribes and Pharisees, or the, or the Pharisees and Sadducees were. You're like, well, how come they, were, they seem to be always hanging out with each other? Because they had a common enemy, Jesus. Neither one of them really liked Jesus a lot, all right? 
the, the, the Pharisees were the religious um, um, fundamentalists. These guys held to the Bible, uh, verse by verse, you know, content by content. They loved the Bible. Uh, the the, Pharise- or the uh, Sadducees were guys that were sort of liberal. They took a lot for granted within the sacred scriptures. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. Now, as Paul grew in his understanding of God, there came a point after the religious sect called Christians or followers of the way started taking off in Christianity or taking off in the first century. A lot of times people think Christianity was sort of like a separate religion. It was not. Christianity, when it started, was basically Judaism. No one would have been able to tell the, the, the difference between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Christians looked like Jews, dressed like Jews, acted like Jews, kept Jewish holidays. Everything Christian within uh, Jerusalem looked very Jewish. All right? But what had happened was, what they didn't like, there was a handful of people, Paul being one of them, that didn't like the fact that these people were claiming that the Messiah also happened to be God. This is the big deal. This was the big issue. This was the number one theological issue that got Jesus killed, was that every Jew in the first century all hoped for, trusted in, looked to a Messiah. Every one of them. Every last Jew was looking for some sort of Messiah. What they weren't expecting, what caught them by surprise, was that the Messiah would be God himself. Nobody was expecting that. That's what threw everybody off. And that's why when Jesus would say things like, look, I and the Father are one, that got him killed. So when early Christians basically on the scene were saying, we believe in the Messiah, that our Messiah has come, that our Messiah is God. God has rescued his people. Again, just like God has always rescued the people in the past, but this time it's final. This time it's finished. This time it's done. This time it's effectual. And Paul didn't like this new sect of Judaism that was arising, so Paul became very antagonistic towards them, persecuted them, sought to kill them. Paul one day was on his road to a city called Damascus at noontime. Paul received this vision, saw Jesus, uh, and basically he was blinded. And a handful of days later, Paul began to realize that the very one to whom he was persecuting was not just simply a group of Christians or a group of people, but God himself. This changed Paul's life. And so what happened for a guy like Paul, this is what is, is absolutely amazing for a guy like Paul, because Paul, as a Pharisee, would have lived in a very, very small world. And what I mean by that, Paul's world was hedged in by all sorts of religious tradition, traditionalism, ideas, concepts that were basically hemmed in by Judaism, and all sorts of uh, religious laws that were uh, essentially made by um, the religious leaders of the day. Some of those things that Paul would not have been able to do, Paul would have never, as a good Pharisee, ever gone and hung out with any Gentile person. Paul would have never had dinner, hung out with, ate food with anybody who was a non-Jew, ever. He would have never sat down at a table or had coffee with a, a lady. Jews just don't do that. Pharisees would have never done that. This is one of the reasons why when Jesus sat down with the prostitute, got him into so much trouble because in their mind they're thinking if Jesus is a, is a teacher, how could Jesus as a good Hebraic teacher sit down with a sinner? You know, good religious leaders just don't do that. That was the idea, that was the mentality. So what you need to understand is something radical happened in Paul's life that unbelievably changed the entire course and direction of his life. And what happened to him was Jesus came into his life, transformed him, 
changed him, took his small, pharisaical, religious world and destroyed it, opened it up, and allowed Paul to do the things that Paul now was on his mission doing. Like Paul was going, the main places that Paul was going to as a missionary wasn't Jewish provinces. Paul was like, look, I want to go to the Gentiles. Paul even was described as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is unbelievable. No one, no one would have, I mean, this is almost like somebody in the South, all right? What is that pastor's name that always pickets, always, does anybody remember his name? It's always picketing, like, let's say a vet, someone dies and he pickets him. Yes, that guy. It'd be almost like that guy having this radical conversion where he meets Jesus, actually gets saved, and starts saying, you know what, I'm going to be a missionary to Muslims, homosexuals, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to have Bible studies. They're going to all come to my house. Everything's going to be awesome. I'm going to make them dinner. I'm going to wash their feet. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm going to go to AIDS clinics. They're all going to be my brothers and sisters. All right, some of you are like, who is that? Just look him up on the internet. You'll find out. I think it's like Westboro Church, whatever. You, you know, you'll see him. The point that I would make is, is that would be absolutely mind-blowing. No one would believe it. That's what happened to Paul. Paul was this guy that was anti-Gentile, anti-anything Judaism, radically changed. So he literally went from being this persecutor of people, of Christians, to being church planter. One of the places that Paul went was in this region called Galatia. It was strictly Gentile. It was, it was, at the time, it was about as far away from Jerusalem as the church has ever traveled. And Paul's like, I gotta go there. I gotta tell people about Jesus. I gotta go tell them that God has set them free through Christ. So Paul goes to the farthest places that he can imagine that are as non-Jewish as he can imagine. Because in Paul's mind, he's thinking, Way beyond Judaism lies these people, lay these people that are locked into paganism, locked into false gods, locked into false deities, you know, all sorts of demonic worship. Paul's like, I want them to know Jesus. So Paul goes off to these places, shares the gospel with these people, and radical things happen. Their lives are changed. Now, Paul doesn't stay in one place for a very long time, so Paul ends up leaving the region of Galatia, and as he leaves, these people come in, and they basically say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he's completely not preaching right truth, not sound doctrine. Paul is giving this picture of God, and he's basically making the way to God way too easy. He's just saying all you gotta do is trust Jesus, and they're basically saying that's not enough. You gotta be circumcised, you gotta follow the laws of Moses, you gotta do the things that we tell you to do, and unless you do that, you're really not saved, and the gospel that Paul gave you is, is, at, is, is at, at, at best just false. At worst, it's completely going to lead you away from God. That's what these guys were saying. And so Paul comes into this group of people, and he realizes that these people are being pulled away from him. Paul comes to them, and he's like, look, when I came to you guys, I came and I was, I, was, I, was in, I was in bad shape. Paul basically says, I came to you not in good health. And a lot of scholars uh, you know, speculate as to exactly what this means. Nobody really knows. I mean, I read some people that are like, well, maybe Paul had malaria. It's possible. Some might say, you know, maybe Paul had this nasty eye disease. Again, we don't know. Others, I, I'd read, you know, maybe Paul was in some sort of a, um, a shipwreck. In fact, Paul talks about having several shipwrecks. So it's very possible, whatever happened. I think, you know, whatever it was, that when Paul came to these people, Something about his physical appearance was not attractive. 
So, I mean, if it was some sort of like a shipwreck or maybe Paul had gotten beaten up in another region or another city before he came to these guys, he comes in there, he's got a big fat lip, cauliflower ear, his face looks nasty, he looks like he was just got out of the octagon, something's not right with this guy. But he comes in, he's like, got Bible in his hands, like, I want to tell you Jesus. All right, and they're like, you look ugly, but I want to hear what you have to say. All right, and, and Paul's like, you guys loved me. You guys accepted me, even though I looked horrible. I wasn't looking my best, but you guys, you guys loved me. And that meant a lot to me, is what Paul's saying. So Paul's whole, whole tone has changed here. It's went from this nasty didactic argument of you need to understand the theological implications of where your life is taking you to saying, look, guys, all that aside, you're my brothers. Verse 12, he starts off, uses the Greek word adelpho. You guys are my brothers. Let's just put all this theological talk aside for just a second here. Let's get down to the very base, foundational level as to where I'm at with you. I'm not your superior. I'm your brother. I'm with you guys. We're in this together. And the problem is, is that someone has come in and has told you lies about me. But what I love about this is Paul's not writing this in some sort of sentimental plea to say, I just want you to take me back. I mean, Paul's not some insecure girlfriend who's just like, do you really love me? I want you to love me still because I feel really lost without you. That's not Paul. Paul doesn't even care about that. He doesn't care about his position in their minds. What Paul's primary concern for them is that you're wandering from Jesus. He's like, look guys, my brothers, and you're walking away from Jesus. I don't want you to walk away from Jesus. You walk away from Jesus, you walk away from freedom. You walk away from freedom, you walk away from joy. You forfeit joy. I don't want you to forfeit joy. So Paul's whole point is to basically aim his guns at their hearts and say, look, let's get down to the very bottom of all of this. I'm one of you. I was with you. I was laboring with you. I love you guys. And the path you're leading on, the path you're following will take you away from freedom, take you away from joy and lead you back into slavery and lead you back into a place where your heart is full of despair because that's where religious legalism leads you. That's where sin leads you. So here's what I want to take a look at. Three things very quickly. We'll nail these down and really it boils down to this is that at the end of the day, what we're going to take a look at again in a lot of ways, it has to do with this pastor slash um, sheep relationship. But again, I think it can be applied to leaders in any type of situation that you find yourself in. But really, again, at the end of the day, anybody that just sees themselves in a place of saying, I want to be an agent of change. I want to be somebody that can help somebody else. If you're not somebody that's either helping somebody else, maybe it's because you yourself are needing somebody to help you. Or... Maybe you yourself have become so self-absorbed with yourself that you don't see yourself as being able to help other people. So to that end, what I want to basically say is that I believe that if all of us, if we understand what God is calling us to do, that what God does by blessing us, he blesses us so that we can be a blessing. And when we see this, there's certain elements about Paul's life that I think can be applied that if we look at. The first one is this. Good pastors, leaders, or agents of change First of all, incarnational and truthful. What I mean by incarnational is that 
basically they come into a situation and they become part of the situation. They become part of what's going on there. They're not sim simply standing on the outside and basically shouting out their you know, judgments against it from the outside. They're saying, I'll become a part of it. I will become a part of the system. Now, this does not mean that you become a sinner just like other people are sinning. Paul's not saying, look, you guys are a bunch of, you know, sex-crazed people, so I became a sex-crazed person just so I can relate with you. Paul's not saying I became, you know, an alcoholic so I can relate to alcoholics. Drug addicts, so I can relate with drug addicts. There, there's definitely qualifiers here, but what, what I want you to understand is that Paul's trying to say is that there are certain elements of his life that he was able to lay aside so that he can get down on their level and become like one of them. That's true freedom, by the way. True freedom is when you are actually free to say, I can lay certain elements aside in order to go and hang out with other people. Again, when I look at Jesus, he's God. Jesus didn't sin ever. Wasn't, didn't find himself in situations where he sinned. And yet he was still able to sit down with prostitutes, people that were the worst sinners of the day, hang out with them, not be in any way influenced to sin by their sin, but still become an agent of change in their lives. So what we're talking about here is being incarnational is not so much taking on the sinful patterns or proclivities of other people, but learning how to lay aside certain elements that would actually keep you from being a good influencer within that situation. That's what Paul was able to do. So incarnational and truthful as opposed to not detached or hypocritical. Verse 12 says this, Brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. I think what Paul is trying to communicate here is that I was actually able to come into your situation and take upon myself certain elements of Gentile-ness. Paul would say elsewhere, to the Gentiles, I become like a Gentile. To the Jews, I become a Jew. His main objective is so that he can win some. So that he can win some people to Christ. So that others can be like him, free. Others can know Christ the way that Paul knows Christ. That's what Paul's desire was. I see oftentimes in the church this imbalance that come, sometimes slips in. And the imbalance goes from one extreme to the next. You have certain, let's say for example, certain hardcore fundamentalists that are deeply committed to certain values. Let me say it this way. People that err on this particular end usually always have an inability of discerning between foundational, uh, primary doctrinal issues and secondary is doctrinal issues. In other words, they make secondary doctrinal issues as primary doctrinal issues. And they're unwilling to change those things. For example, if somebody has a particular viewpoint on the end times, and they say, I can't, I can't hang out with people that don't have the same viewpoint as me, on the end times. We can't hang out, we can't talk, we can't pray, we can't fellowship, we can't do anything together. People that oftentimes err in this first setting are people that go into a situation, they will never say, I became like you. But here's what they will say. They will say, become like me. They'll walk into a setting and say, I don't care what you're like, you need to become like me. Everybody needs to start acting like me, thinking like me, Theologically analyzing things like me, worshiping like me, praying like me, acting like me, teaching, preaching the Bible like me. And there's not a lot of connection to be able to say, I'll become like you. 
And Paul doesn't, Paul's saying, look, I came into your setting and I became like you. The flip side is I would say maybe kind of the liberalistic type realm, which says we want to relate, we want to be relatable. But sometimes what oftentimes can happen is that people can be so relatable that there's not an anchor into something higher, greater, bigger than themselves that actually they can put, pull themselves out of that. So they might say, look, I became like you. But there's such a difficulty or unwillingness to call sin, sin, or to look at something that may need to be corrected because there, there's lack, maybe a, cur- a courage to basically call people to this thing that they're anchored into above and beyond themselves. Only people, I would say this, only the gospel provides this duality where people can actually both become like some the people that they're trying to reach, but also call them to become something that they're not yet. This is beautiful. This is what the gospel does. What Paul is trying to say is that I didn't come in there and just sort of cloak or veil the truth from you guys. I spoke the truth to you guys. But I did so in a manner by which I became like you. I think what Paul might be saying is that, look, as a, gen- or as a Jew, that even in my former life as a Jew, I would have never hung out with Gentile folk like you guys. But Paul says because of the gospel, I became a Gentile like you guys. I sat around. We ate bacon together, prayed, <laughs> had rib sandwiches. It was awesome. Paul's like, I became like you because at the end of the day, I want you to become like me. I want you to become like me, free. Second thing, that, within that setting, Paul basically goes on to say that he's also been truthful to these guys. He goes on to say in the next little verse, in verse 16, he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I think Paul's point is that, look, I didn't shun in telling you the truth. The important thing is that we tell the truth, we speak the truth, we communicate the truth. Uh, I, I realize that a lot of times today you definitely have some people, and I think definitely in a lot of fundamental circles there are people that come across being basically like bulldogs for the truth. You know, they're like Rottweilers with the truth. They want to fight, they want to latch on you and rip your arm off because you're a heretic. And, and they, they'll, they'll gladly do it. You just, you know, you, it's hard to stop people like this sometimes. And they come across and they're basically causing all sorts of problems, destroying people, hurting people, because they're like, we're all about the truth. Paul, this is why he would later go on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he says this, speak the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head of Christ. Who is the head? That is Christ. Paul's point, look, we've got to speak the truth, but the truth also has to be communicated in love. If you're somebody that's just simply throwing out these like little nuggets of truth, and you're a jerk? Honestly, if you're a jerk, don't expect anything to happen. Don't expect any change. I mean, if you're a dad, and the way that you convey truth to your kids is just by saying, here's the Bible, you gotta do this. If you fail to do this, you'll go to hell. I mean, there may be truth to that. There's absolutely no love. There's no willingness to get down on their level and say, I will become like you because I really, at the end of the day, want more than anything for you to become like me, free. The point that I would make is this, is that all of us, all of us, to some degree, are missionaries. All of us. I say this to people all the time. It's not just like, you know, Evan, we're going to ship him out and go be a missionary. 
All of us are missionaries. Every last one of us. I mean, if you're a teacher, you're a missionary. Your mom, you're a missionary. You know, your dad, you're a missionary. You own a business, you're a missionary. All of us are missionaries. We use the term missional, but the reality is this, is that all of us, to some degree, way, shape, or form, are representing Christ. So at the end of the day, we're either good missionaries representing Christ in a way that's, that's, that's tangible, that's good, or we're not representing Christ in a way that's good. And the way that we represent Christ in a way that's good, I think that becomes sort of an agent of change, is we have to recognize this real important element which Paul did. Is Paul says, I came unto you, I became like you, because at the end of the day, I want you to become like me, free. I told you the truth, have I now become your enemy? So the first thing that we need to understand is this importance of becoming incarnational and truthful. The second thing that I want you to notice is that good pastors, leaders, agents of change are actually God-centered and inclusive Explain what that means in a second here. And not self-centered and exclusive. What I mean by inclusive, or I should say what I don't mean by inclusive, is I don't mean universalism. I don't mean everybody's going to go to God no matter what. In fact, I would even go so far as to say this. Sometimes people say things like this, which sort of kind of a myth. They still say things like this. God accepts us as we are. Some of you have heard that. God accepts us as we are. The reality is that's half true. It's not really accurate. The only reason why God accepts us, in fact, if you want to say it true, that God accepts us as we are in Christ. That's the way that God accepts us. He doesn't accept us as we are. In fact, he rejects us as we are. That's the whole point of Galatians, is that he does not accept us as we are. This is why we need somebody from the outside who can make us acceptable. This is the beauty of what we call justification by faith. We are justified or made acceptable because of a gift from God. The gift is his own son. It's absolutely beautiful. But the reality is this, is that these good leaders are God-centered and inclusive. Take a look at verse 17. He says, they make much of you, but not for a good purpose. They want to shut you out that, you, that they may make much of uh, themselves. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, and he says in verse 19, my little children for whom I'm again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Because he didn't know there's this dirty, dark little secret of church leadership. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the secret out of the bag because you guys all need to know it. The reality is there are some pastors out there that they will flatter you. They will literally speak words of flattery to you just to get you to like them. Let me, let me put it this way. Ministry is not for people that have some sort of deficiency in being liked. If they feel like, I need to be liked, I'll become a pastor. I need to be loved, I'll become a pastor. I need to be in the spotlight, I'll become a pastor or leader. It's the worst place for you to be because what ends up happening is you end up building a church that's basically you. You're building your own kingdom, okay? Let, let me explain it to you. The big, dark, deep secret of a lot of churches and pastors is this. They will actually, because they're insecure in themselves, what they want to do is they want to build a big church. Because the bigger their church is, the more people that come, the more people recognize this pastor, the more people want to give him sort of accolades, get him on some sort of speaking engagement rotation list so that people can recognize him and his ego is able to be boosted. So here's what he does. He finds people that are good, gifted, skilled, maybe in art, maybe in music, maybe in whatever. And he tracks these types of people. And here's what he does. Sits them down, takes them out to coffee, hangs out with them, woos them, tells them how beautiful they are, how wonderful they are, how gifted they are. 
at the end of the day, what ends up happening is these people buy into this. They're like, oh, thank you. I, I was, I'm just like you, actually, but I was waiting for someone to acknowledge me, so now you did. What do you want from me? I want you to do this, or I want you to be a part of this ministry, be part of this church, this leadership. So Paul's saying that these people back in Galatia, they were making much of the Galatians. They were coming into him saying, you guys are amazing. You guys are awesome people. You guys deserve way more than what you've been given. And what's happening is Paul's saying that, that you guys are buying it. And as a result of buying it, you're allowing them to basically pervert you. Because at the end of the day, these guys, they're not trying to direct you to Jesus. They're trying to direct you to themselves. They're not God-centered. They're not trying to form Christ in you. They're trying to form you to become their disciples. I know a pastor, honestly, this is just absolutely crazy, but I, I, I know a guy that has this like positive people that everybody, it's just part of the whole group. They all know that when you go hang out with the pastor, you don't call him by his name. God forbid you call him by his name because after all, you know, he's, he's, he's our superior. So you gotta call him pastor. You gotta acknowledge him as being this great man of God. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with calling somebody pastor. I'm just simply saying that the way the system has worked there, whenever, whenever somebody goes out with them, they have lunch with them, they take them to coffee, everybody just knows you gotta pay for him. You gotta take care of him. He's your superior. And the guy basically runs a system where he's like, he's got all these very strict type of rules, regulations, systems set up. And a lot of the people that follow it, that at the end of the day, the guy, I think, personally has this mentality that just wants to be known and identified as being the guy that has all these things that are kind of walking, working in place. And the way these things oftentimes end up going down or what ends up happening is people end up getting hurt. At the end of the day, at some point, when somebody finally sees the light and they see that they were basically used, that the pastor gave them a bunch of you know, nice, flattering words to encourage them, make them feel really good about themselves, and they use them, abuse them, and basically just let them go because maybe someone else came up in the ranks that was better than them. They just let them go. They were hurt. They were wounded. They were destroyed. Because at the end of the day, what you witnessed was a leader that was not trying to form Christ in you. He's trying to form followers after himself. And Paul's saying, guys, there's a distinction here. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if we become friends ever again. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to give up until Christ is formed in you guys. These guys, they tell you flattering things because at the end of the day, they want to make you loyal to them. The difference between exclusion and inclusion, when churches, when groups, when societies, when tribes, when denominations become about, say, a leader or a founding leader or some guy who's like the head honcho, head prophet, whatever you want to call him, apostle, whatever you want to call him, when everything becomes about this guy, then what ends up happening is you have a religious system that basically is straight-jacketed by these rules and regulations from this outside guy. In other words, it becomes very exclusive. Here's why. Because for you to become a part of the club, part of the tribe, part of the denomination, part of the group, you have to submit to all these secondary rules and regulations before you can be fully accepted in the club. Maybe you've been in that, maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe you've been in that church. And what I'm trying to say is I think Paul's heart 
because let me, let me just be straight up honest. Because some of you might be like, well, wait a minute, is, is this guy a pastor? You know, isn't Brian a pastor? And how can, how can we know that he's actually being 100% objective? You can't. And, and you're like, how, how can I trust him? Honestly, I don't think you can. Because honestly, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't even know if I can fully trust my own motivations. So what I'm trying to do as best as I can is stick to what Paul's trying to convey here and say what Paul saw back then are things that are still going down 2,000 years later. They're still on the docket. And so sometimes it's led some people to just be like, throw out church altogether. The whole institution, the whole system, the whole situation is corrupt. But I think what Paul is trying to say is, yeah, there are huge elements of it that are corrupt. That's what Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with corruption. But what Paul's not saying, he's not saying create anarchy. What he's actually trying to say is there needs to be order. But the order needs to be underneath the headship of Jesus, not another leader. And any leader that establishes order really just simply should be establishing order under the headship of Christ. In other words, it's just a mirrored reflection of the leadership that's already preexistent from Christ, period. And so what happens oftentimes in these situations is churches can become very exclusive, where they're looking at other churches around, they're like, they don't worship like we do. Their worship is not nearly as good. And you know, let me just say something. We said earlier, we were talking about spirit-filled worship. I don't know if even that's, that's, that's not a good way to identify anything. I think what everyone was trying to convey was that we just want people to, to be able to have good, decent worship. And the distinction is between just playing songs and just entering into singing songs. Not just playing through songs, but singing songs, like to the point where your heart's engaged. Not everybody is able to get that. Sometimes it's just simply a technical way in which you train and teach other people to do that. In no way would we ever look at anything we have here and say we're better than anybody else. In fact, I would plead with you guys, don't do that. Don't be that church. Don't be those people that go out of here and start boasting of Calvary Slow. This is not about Calvary Slow. It's not about what we do here. It's not about how we teach or the methodology by which we do stuff. It's about Jesus at the end of the day. If it becomes about Calvary Slow, then that means that any other church that is going to be like Calvary Slow has to do things exactly the way we are, and by very nature of that, it becomes exclusive. Because unless you have the same lights, or unless you have a dude with skinny jeans, then you can't have worship the way that we have worship. So it becomes restricting, even though skinny jeans are restricting by nature. But the point that I would make is this. <laughs> it's got to be about Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. And when it's about Jesus, it's radically inclusive. Anybody can come. Anybody. No matter how far in sin you've been, no matter how far you've walked away from God, no matter how, how much you've destroyed your life, no matter what type of pain or hardship or circumstances bring you here, it's about saying, we're here to meet with Jesus. We're here to get to Christ because Christ gets us to the Father and the Father heals us. Jesus forgives us and saves us. It's about Jesus. It's not about how we do things. That's exclusive. 
that excludes, excludes people. Jesus includes all people. And again, brings us to salvation and changes us. The last thing that I want to say is this. Good pastors, leaders, ultimately are gentle and sacrificial, not rough and demanding. Here's what I say about Paul. Verse 19, he says this little statement right here. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth. Paul actually changes the word again. The first word that he used in verse uh, 12, he says, Adelpho, my brothers. Now he changes the word again where now he says, my little children. He actually uses a word, that's a Greek word, that's, uh, it's called technon. It's basically a, a very intimate word having to do with little children. Paul's like, Paul's very serious about making sure that his, his mode of addressing these people has changed. It's adapted to where they're at. Paul's like, at the end of the day, this is not about me trying to convince you of just simply theology. At the end of the day, I want you to know that God absolutely loves you and he's passionate for you that you would stay close to him and not fall back into traps of sin, not fall back into traps of religious legalism that excludes and makes your world small and crushes in on you and becomes like a straight jacket on you and squeezes out joy so you are no longer joyful or satisfied. Paul says, I want you to be brought into the freedom of Christ that's massively huge and transformative and weighty and lasting and eternal and ultimately leads you to great profound joy even in the midst of great suffering like I experienced amongst you when I was there and yet you accepted me. Paul says, I became like you so that you become like me. At the end of the day, the little sacrifices that Paul made were nothing compared to the great sacrifice that Jesus made. This is why we love Jesus, guys. At the end of the day, the one who did this the greatest is Jesus. Jesus himself can say, I became like you. Feel that. What other God has done that? What other deity what other being has ever done that? Jesus says, I became like you. Not to leave you there. Not to commiserate with you. Not to just simply affirm you. But to rescue you. So that you could become like me. Free. And sons of God. This is huge. Let me read you a passage. I'm done. I'm going to actually have Chris come on up and we're going to sing. We're going to worship. I want to listen to this passage. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 21 is basically a passage that has to do with leadership. And here's what he says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It says later on, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning for, they, for, that, they would be, for that would be of no advantage to you. A lot of times in our culture, in our day-to-day, -day, we challenge any type of authority, especially religious authority, any type of Christian authority as being simply something that is out to be a power play. And I have to simply admit, 
a lot of that's true. It's absolutely true. Unfortunately, it's true. If that's you, if you've been in that place, in that church, where someone who had been vested authority by God, given authority by God, and they abused it to get you to be their followers, to form their club, to form their kingdom, and you felt abused and broken and abandoned and just simply battered in your soul and your heart, what you need to understand is those leaders did not reflect properly the proper type of religious or the proper type of uh, leadership that Jesus himself has given. Listen to how it finishes up. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. It says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that we may be restored to you sooner. Verse 20 says, now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, says the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's what the writer of Hebrew does, Hebrews does. Is he basically says, at the end of the day, you have an amazing pastor. Calvary Slow, you guys know that you have an amazing pastor here? It's not me. I'm serious, it's not me. I'm just one of many. It's not me. You actually have a pastor that loves you. He's a shepherd. He laid his life down for you. Any sacrifices I've ever made, I've made a lot of them. I've made a lot of them. Any pastors make a lot of them. If you're a mom, you make a lot of sacrifices. Any sacrifices a pastor or a leader or a mom or a dad or anybody makes is nothing compared to the great sacrifice that Jesus, the good shepherd, made. At the end of the day, what you need to understand is you have a good shepherd, a good pastor who loves you, who tends to the needs and the wounds and the hurts and the, and the, and the just heart of his sheep. He cares for you guys. Good pastors, good leaders, people that bring about true lasting change are people that not, are not those that draw people out to themselves, are those that if they do that, they ultimately draw them to Jesus They lead them, guide them, direct them to Jesus. I can't give you healing. Jesus can. I can't take wounded, battered hearts, souls that have been affected by people that have abused you in the past and somehow remove it and cleanse you. I can't do that. Jesus can. I can't take your soul that's been stained by sin and somehow absolve it. I don't have that power. Jesus does. This is why we love Jesus. This is why Jesus is a great shepherd. This is why we're going to worship him right now. This is why we long to partake of even the communion because as we drink the cup and we eat the bread, it reminds us that our God became like us so that we, through the cross, could become like him, free, free from sin, free to love, free to worship God ultimately to find joy. Do you know that God's joyful? Do you know that? He's a joyful God. Many times the Bible describes God as the blessed God. Maybe for some of you, you've always, always thought of God as grumpy, upset, angry. But before all that, God's joyful. He's a joyful God. 
and the purpose of the good news, the point of the good news, the intention of the good news, and good shepherds and pastors and leaders that bring people to true lasting change is to bring them to the joyful God. And the way, the path to the joyful God is through Jesus. Ironically, it was through great suffering. Great price was paid to bring about great joy. This is why we have a great shepherd. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. Some of you need to respond by taking your sin, casting them on Jesus. Let's respond. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We look to you. We worship you. We bend our knee to you. You are a God that we can worship. You're a God that's good. You're a God that didn't just bark orders down at us and tell us to change. You're a God that didn't just simply throw scriptures at us and tell us to read them and change. But you are a God that came among us. You suffered like us. You left glory for us. You bring healing to people like us who need it. So God, as we worship you now, as we sing to you, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a profound way over the hearts and the lives of people in this room. There are those here, God, right now that don't know you, they're not Christians, they've never called upon you, they've never confessed sin to you. Pray, God, that they would see you as a powerful, big, mighty, loving God, and that they would run to you and ask your forgiveness. Others, God, here that are hurting, I pray that they would run to you and see you as a good shepherd that loves to just bind up wounds and ultimately bring about work towards their joy. So we better need now to you and we worship you.